most applications today are either deployed to on-premise environments or deployed to a single cloud provider. Developers who are deploying on-prem struggle to set up complicated open source tools like Kafka and Hadoop. Developers who are deploying to a cloud provider tend to stay within that specific cloud provider because moving between different clouds and integrating services across clouds adds complexity. Ben Hindman started the Apache Mesos project when he was working in the Berkeley AMP Lab. Mesos is a scheduler for resources in a distributed system, allowing compute and storage to be scheduled onto jobs that can use those resources. In his time at the AMP Lab, Ben collaborated with Matei Zaharia, creator of Apache Spark. Ben founded Mesosphere based off of his work on Apache Mesos. And since 2013, Ben has been building a company to bring Mesos to market. In the meantime, several market forces have influenced the world of enterprises. Enterprise businesses built on virtual machines and on-prem hardware are trying to migrate to containers, Kubernetes, and Spark. Cloud providers like Google and Microsoft have risen to prominence in addition to Amazon's continued growth. And enterprises are increasingly willing to adopt multiple clouds. I spoke with Ben Hindman at KubeCon North America. Today, the company that Ben co-founded works to provide tools for managing these changes in infrastructure. In our conversation, Ben and I talked about the necessary mindset shifts that he had to make when taking a research project and turning it into a highly successful product. We also talked about the newer trends in infrastructure, why enterprises will want multi-cloud deployments, and how serverless APIs and backends will make the lives of developers much easier. We are currently looking for sponsors for Q1. If you're interested in advertising on Software Engineering Daily, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor. We're also conducting a listener survey. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey, and you can find that survey. We would love to know what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right, and you can also take a moment to enter your email address in that survey and get some Software Engineering Daily swag or get a chance at getting Software Engineering Daily swag. You can also sign up for our newsletter by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash newsletter. And with that, let's get on with the episode. Ben Heinemann, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's great to be here. You created Mesos at the Berkeley Amp Lab. Yep. Jan Stoika was recently on the show. He was, I guess he led the lab, and you worked with him when you were creating Mesos. Also in the AMP Lab was Matei Zaharia, who created Spark. What was it that made the AMP Lab so special? That's a great question. So, you know, what's, what's interesting is the AMP Lab was the home for the projects, but we were, we were just pre-AMP Lab when we first started working on this stuff. We're actually part of the RAD Lab. So Berkeley, I think, had done an amazing job as an institution of basically creating these multidisciplinary, all within computer science usually, but multidisciplinary across various parts of computer science labs where they bring all these teams together and you've got folks that do machine learning, you've got folks that do systems, you've got folks that do hardware architecture, you've got folks that do programming languages, all come together to figure out how they can possibly solve problems. And so, you know, b- before the AMP Lab was the RAD Lab, after the AMP Lab is now the RISE Lab, which I'm sure Jan, Jan talked about on the show. I'll have to go watch that show and listen to the show. So, so I think that's the first real ingredient of what makes these special, what makes it special that so much great tech can come out is... You just blend people of various interests and backgrounds together. And, you know, from diversity, I think you can get some really, really powerful stuff. You know, in, in our case, what's interesting about where, you know, where Mesos came from, where Spark came from, they actually came, I was actually working originally in the PAR lab, which was another one of these labs. Again, Berkeley is really, really good at these labs. And the PAR lab was the parallel computing laboratory, and so I was doing parallel computing and the folks I was working with, Matei, other folks, 
they were doing distributed systems and parallel computing and distributed systems are very, very similar. Uh, in fact, it's interesting when you know, some of the first work I was doing actually had 128 core chips that I got to play with. And at the time, the, the promise was that we'd have 128 cores in our laptops and our phones. We're not there yet, but ho- hopefully one day we'll get there. And the distributed systems folks, they had, had clusters. And in some cases, I had more CPUs in my single 128-core chip than they had in their entire clusters, which I suppose was always a, a fun fun boasting boasting or bragging bragging thing to, to talk about. So the first ingredient was, I, th- I think, bringing this diversity, bringing a bunch of people together. And then I, I think the second ingredient is the labs tended to be funded by the industry, and so there was an exposure to problems. There's exposure to real problems that, you know, needed to be solved, <laughs> right? You know, um, I, I, I think oftentimes people talk about academics being in their ivory towers and, you know, just working on whatever they want to work on theoretically or, or otherwise. And I think all the work that comes out of Berkeley is, is great. But I think one of the things Berkeley is really well known for oftentimes is helping to create industries, because, you know, there's a good connection to the industry and the problems that the industry is having. And then, you know, you combine that with a bunch of diverse folks and smart folks and think about problems. And we solve things in ways that can end up being consumed and used. So, you know, in Mesos's case, we were solving the problem of how do you manage all these distributed systems? It's complicated. It's, it's not easy. Um, you got a ton of resources. What's the best way to manage them? Uh, it's the same parallel computing problem I was solving before, and would, but I just transferred it really from doing it in a parallel computing setting to doing it in a distributed setting, and, and thus Mesos was born. And Spark came out of, okay, we've got MapReduce, but we'd really love to to do things more iteratively, <laughs> right? And like, let's not reload the data, reread from disks every single time. Um, even if we get SSDs, it's still going to be faster if we stick it in memory. And that was a real problem, and, and thus Spark was born. Uh, it's actually pretty fun. When Spark actually was created at my, my parents' house in Colorado... <laughs> Which I don't know if Jan Jan talked about that, but it's a it's a fun old story. Yeah, I mean the the reality was again in now the Amp Lab we had uh, teams working in machine learning and and they were coming to the systems folks with the problem of, hey, it takes so long for me to run this iterative job, can't we just solve this with a better distributed system? And we said, yeah. And, and, and the um, student at the time that was, was um, asking about that and talking to us about that was a guy named Lester Mackey. And Lester's gone on now. He's a s- statistics professor in, 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 at Stanford. And he was doing great, great uh, research, but he just wanted to speed, speed it up, wanted things to go faster. And so when we first conceived of a new distributed system to make this go faster, we actually called it uh, Lester's Framework. That's, that's, that's how we, we tokened it was Lester's Framework. And there's this really fun photo that, you know, whenever I get to connect up with Matei and, and, um, and Andy and, and some of the other folks from the Rat, Amp Lab, Rad Lab, we sometimes joke about that photo because that was the beginning of Spark, was building this, this framework for, uh, for Lester and making it go faster. So when you're in this lab, at this point there's been a cycle of luminaries that have gone from academia to industry and back. You've got people like Michael Stonebreaker and Jan. Jan started two very successful companies. You've got Dave Patterson in the mix. And what's interesting about these folks is they not only have the the computer science academic distance from the problems, like they've seen they've seen so many cycles that they know that everything new is old. It's been around for like the, you know, the same problems kind of just return and different forms. And so they have a certain, at least this is something I've noticed from computer science professors that have been around for a while. They have this ability to take a distance, a distant approach. And sometimes, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I would talk to some of these computer science professors and be like, Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're, you, and it's sort of like, you know, as I guess, as you get a little bit older, you're like, Oh, I guess I should respect the, elders they know what they're talking about so what what have you learned from from those kinds of folks who have spent a lot of time in industry and in academia and who have that long sense of remove from problems yeah i think it's critical right we often talk about you know is this an evolution or is this a revolution right you know <laughs> that's a, a phrase that sometimes gets thrown out there and when you're doing research is it just is this kind of the next step or is it just an evolution or is this is this pretty dramatic are you really 
you know, this is a revolution, are you changing the way in which people should think about, about doing stuff? And I think oftentimes in academia, I think a lot of people are going after the revolution. <laughs> and I, I think academia sort of affords you the ability to do that because when you raise money, you raise grants, you, you get money from, from the government. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's clearly a definition of failure, which is you were able to do very little with that money. But you might fail to achieve exactly from an academic perspective what you're trying to build, but you learned so much along the way and you published a ton of great papers and you gave that information back to the scientific community that they can then build on in, 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 in future work. And, and so I, I, I think in academia, you're well positioned for really that revolution perspective. And I, that's that distance, I think, is like taking a step back and sort of seeing, seeing that distance and, and trying to, to go do something there. But I, I, I think what, to me, what really sets apart the Berkeley professors, oftentimes from a lot of other professors, is how they can connect the revolution to the evolution. Because they have been in industry, and, and again, Berkeley is unique in the sense that it, it puts these labs together, which are funded in, in many cases by, uh, by folks in, in, in the industry, you know, the Googles and the Microsofts and the VMwares and, and all these companies. And I think that sort of, that helps create this really perfect storm, you know, of, of revolutionary thinking, but almost connected to evolutionary, how it can be applied and used in industry. And Berkeley's very well known for, as I said earlier, helping to create industries and helping to create tech that is adopted and used in serious ways throughout throughout the industry. Um, you know, all the way back to the Unix days and, and pl- plenty of, of other examples. So, I mean, I think the thing, I, I guess, the thing I've learned to answer the question is that you know, if you want to make a big impact, you should start with that revolutionary thinking, but you need to also apply some cycles into how do I actually make this connect back you know, and, and apply to how people can actually use it today? And I think that's, that's really the crux. And, and again, I think Berkeley's great at that and, and they continue to do it. And now with the Rise Lab, I think there'll be other technologies that will come out of it that people will be able to to, to, to use. You know, and going back to your earlier question as well, you know, what, what makes Berkeley so unique? I think the other thing is you, you, there's an attraction to Berkeley from a graduate student perspective. I know I had that, I, I had this when I went to Berkeley, but there's an attraction to being builders, wanting to build stuff. And again, I think it's because of Berkeley's long history of building stuff that's a bit more revolutionary, but can be applied, applied in industry. And I think that's really attractive to a bunch of people. Not everybody, but I think there's there ten, you tend to get folks that choose Berkeley over, say, Stanford or MIT or some of these other schools because they want to go be the builders of those things. They want to go build that thing. And even that as a, as a mindset is, I think, a critical one to actually get your ideas out into the world and being consumed. Because if your mindset is just the extent of what I'm trying to do here is come up with a bunch of great ideas that I will disseminate via a research paper and go talk about at a research conference, it's going to be very, very hard for those things to actually get picked up in any kind of industrial setting, or at least it might take a very, very long time. Yeah. I uh, Over the holidays, I talked to my older brother about this a bit because he does research, and he started going to some conferences where they talk a little bit about building business around your research. He does it in the biology area, so I think it's a little bit different than computer science. It's it's not quite as easy to, you know, if you've got a a project in academic biology that you want to, like, take to market, I think it's a little bit more complex, at least from some point of view. So Berkeley primes you with that builder's mentality. It sort of says, whether you want to do this in academia or industry, here's an environment where you can build something with an application. So when you move from the research side of things to the application business side of things, did your mindset have to shift? What kinds of shifts did you have to make to go to the business world? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, hundred percent. Your mind should have to. Sh- your mind, your mind has to shift. I, I think it depends on the role you end up playing as well. If you go into industry, things are still very, very different. First, uh, there is actually a pretty big jump. Uh, still to this day from what gets built in an academic setting versus how that's going to get run in, in an enterprise setting. I mean, that, that's a huge jump from academia to enterprise. It's massive. Little things like 
did you build this thing from day one with the perspective of multi-tenancy included? You know, that's a massive one. You know, in enterprise, there's going to be a ton of users using whatever you're doing. And, and you know, so did you build it that way or not? Did you build it in a way where you thought about security <laughs> and who can do what and, and how, you know, how things are going to be communi- you know, communicating? That, that's, you know, it's, it's massive. It's security. And I, I mean, I can't tell you to this day how few systems in academia have security from day one. They just don't, right? You know, it, 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 but it makes sense. As a, as a grad student, even if you're a builder thinking about how you want to architect this thing, are you going to spend the extra time thinking about what the security architecture is going to look for? You're not. You're going you're gonna to work on getting it to have the best performance to, to solve, you know, the problems you're trying to solve as a systems builder, as a systems researcher. And then, you know, you'll, you'll circle back and put security in. And, and to, to be perfectly honest, I think that's, that's even more of a failure of our programming languages and our frameworks, our software frameworks, than I think it is of, of anything else. I, I think if we had software, if we had programming languages, which force this stuff up upon you just like we can force type systems and 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 you to program in other particular ways i actually think that you know that we, we could solve these problems but that's future research that people could could potentially do so i think i think there's there is a lot there's definitely a shift in in thinking and and the work that people need to do to transition it's interesting again if you're if you're in if you go into industry and you're working at a tech company where your job is to just build tech I think it's a little easier to stay in the mentality of the builder mentality and to, to you know, think, think a little bit revolutionary, but you're probably going to be thinking more evolutionary, quite frankly, because even if you're in a tech environment, you have your own internal users now and your own internal users, they ask for far simpler things than what you might want to build, right? Or they might ask for something and it's easy for you to say, oh, I could build that this way. You know, this great, revolutionary, grandiose vision for how to solve those people's problems. And you say, yeah, it's going to take me six to eight months. And then they'll say, well, couldn't you just do this one little thing and then I can do that? And you're like, yeah, I could. But, you know, but then I'm not, you know, really innovating. You know, I'm, I'm just evolving this thing. And I think that's a big challenge for a lot of people. I, I see that every single day with engineers all the time. But the best products, quite frankly, are the ones that really do evolve. That you know, they kind of show up day one from an, in, from an, a, you know, from a revolutionary perspective. But then they just evolve with the customers in a really, really nice way. And you know, the example I, I like to give it often for that is the iPhone. You know, the first version of the iPhone, which did very well, it didn't have copy paste you know <laughs> like it just didn't have copy paste so you couldn't you know and now anyone who's using any any modern cell phone mobile phone like it's just we, we take it for granted that we would have that but first version no copy and paste that's okay because that showed up in a subsequent you know the next version of ios and i mean that wasn't like revolutionary that was just like a pretty minor little thing but that's where I think the best the best products are just they're thinking about those little things and they're putting those little things and they're they're making that all be a, a great experience, um, and that's definitely a different mindset. You know, thinking about that next thing that you're going to just that's next small thing for the customer. I think is a totally different mindset than the academic mindset of what's a revolutionary thing I can do. You know, the the revolutionary iPhone thing would for co- copy and paste would would be I don't know something crazy like you can squint at at the screen and. When you when you look, it notices exactly which text you might be looking at, and you know it says, "Oh, that's what you're trying to copy, right?" You know they would have just done something crazy, but you know that would be more the academic perspective. It's like, "Oh, copy paste. That's easy. That's just a bunch of code we need to write. We just haven't written it yet." But that's what you got to do. You just you just got to do those things. So that that I think is a is a big transition and, and is a big change. Now on the business side, honestly, it's even it's even bigger. You know, I, for, for me, it's been an interesting journey because as a co-founder. I'm not just doing tech stuff. In, in fact, you know, it kind of goes in cycles. You know, at the very beginning, maybe I was still doing a lot of tech stuff. Then I spend time doing a lot of business stuff, business strategy. And there's a lot of things that are applicable from the a- academic perspective. But the reality is, is the business world is a very different world. <laughs> and to think, you know, you think differently, you, you know, you, you have different goals, really, that, that define what success looks like. You know, in academia, success looks like introducing a bunch of great ideas, you know, in business, ideas don't pay anyone's salary. <laughs> so, you know, oftentimes, you'll find yourself having the company invest in what you might not even consider to be 
amazing revolutionary ideas, but you know there's a market out there and you know people want to buy those things or will buy those things. And it's just a totally different mindset, you know, to actually take a step back and say, no, 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 I don't need to think about the most revolutionary thing. I need to think about the thing that that the customers are going to want to be buying, that they need and and what they're going to be doing. And that's why I think a lot of of businesses have, you know, under CTOs, they have things like research. (laughs) Because I think if you just did that, if you were only constantly thinking about what the market needed today and, and the product you're trying to build for the market today, then you would get law. You know, you would get, you know, when the next great thing came out of academia or anywhere else, you wouldn't be ready to jump on that and take advantage of it and make it be part of your company or you wouldn't yourself be, be the ones that are doing the innovation, do, do, being the ones that are doing that. And um, you know, I, I think businesses know that and that's why they create their, these research arms and there's a bunch of really, really good uh, tech that can come out of those research arms. And that ends up being a balance. But again, I mean, if I go talk to some of my customers and I say, hey, I know you want copy and paste and it's going to make your life so much better. But like, that's just, you know, kind of par for the course. So we're not going to build that. But we're thinking about this crazy other future, you know, blink copy. (laughs) You know, I I know what my customers would say. They'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. Just just give me the simple thing. Just give me copy and paste. Well, I think a perfect example of this is where you've gone with the company because you started out with something that was revolutionary, Mesos providing cluster scheduler, data center operating system stuff for people, and you found traction there. And the market has gone to a place where the focus of enterprises today, as far as I can tell, is that they want an ability to manage multiple open source frameworks, which does fit into your original vision, but there's also the focus on how do we manage a bajillion Kubernetes clusters? So it's a focus on Kubernetes, and it's also a focus on how do we adopt cloud services and multiple cloud services from different providers, and how are we going to manage all the billing, and how are we going to manage all the different accounts? And it's just kind of a disaster right now. People have no idea what to do. If you go and talk to different vendors who are selling to them, the vendors can give them some sense of vision, but the, the visions are different if you from vendor to vendor. So you have enterprises walking around, and they're kind of, you know, some of them are a little bit paralyzed. Some of them are just like gradually easing into their buying decisions. So tell me your perspective there. How do you position yourself in this super crowded market where you have all these different kind of distributed systems modernization vendors trying to compete for the enterprise contracts? All the vendors are offering different visions. How do you position yourself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I I think you were actually capturing it pretty well for us, which is tons of Kubernetes clusters, but not just Kubernetes, a bunch of other services, distributed systems, data services people are trying to run as well, thrown into a mix of, do I do this myself or do I do it you know, myself on-prem or do I do it myself in the cloud or do I just let the cloud do it all for me? I, it, it's actually, it's a, it's a pretty fun time from, from a business perspective when it comes to that because, I mean, you'll even hear this from, from AWS and the leadership at AWS. We're still, it's still the early days for cloud. It still really is. Um, there's a, a lot of organizations that are in the cloud, but it's still early days and there's a huge opportunity to help people with that transition. The thing we focus on, uh, I, I'll, actually, I'll actually give you uh, our vision uh, for the company that, it, you know, that we say all to all new employees and it's kind of our elevator pitch in many ways. What we want to do is provide a public cloud experience or public cloud services from an open ecosystem. So from open source software, open source distributed systems, but that you can run on any infrastructure. You know, you can run anywhere. You can run it on-prem. You can run it in the cloud. Because the reality that we've seen is going from 10 years ago, uh, if you were a company 10 years ago and you decided you wanted to go to the cloud, the cloud 1, 1.0 of, of our world was, it wasn't services, it was, it was virtual machines. We went to the cloud to get virtual machines. That's what we did. We went to AWS and we got EC2 instances. And then on top of those EC2 instances, we did whatever we wanted. And the reason why we did that was because it took 30 seconds to get an EC2 instance but it took you know, six months to get a physical machine in my own, my own on-prem environments. And even if I had something like VMware, it probably wasn't 30 seconds, but it still probably took some amount of time because I still got to go through some tape to be you know, signed off that I can actually get a virtual machine. So the early push, the cloud 1.0 push for people was all about getting EC2, getting VMs fast. And then on top of those VMs, I'll do whatever I want. 
So you had companies, though I like to think about it, everyone kind of looks at Silicon Valley and they say, you know, what, what Silicon Valley is doing now is what enterprise will be doing in five years. And there, there's some truth to that. It's not, you know, black and white, but there's definitely some truth to that. So 10 years ago, when you saw, you know, all these Silicon Valley new companies just going to the cloud to get EC2 instances, now what we like to think of as the cloud 2.0 of the world is people don't go to get EC2 instances. I mean, some people still get some instances, but more and more what people do is they just go take advantage of the services. You know, they, they don't go get an EC2 instance and then stand up a message queue. They just go to AWS and get Kinesis, right? You know, they don't go get an EC2 instance and stand up MySQL. They just go get RDS, right? You know, they, they, th- this is kind of the, this cloud 2.0 world, which is people want these, these services, but it's a conundrum because if people go and they just use these services, they lock themselves in, right? They, uh, you know, they, as they get the agility and the speed so they can start building their apps and going, 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 but they ultimately get themselves locked in. I think there's a, enough people out there that are, are worried about all the lock-in they've had in the past with all the various software that they've used. And so they're trying to figure out what they can do to actually get them so that they're not going to get locked in. You know, they want to be able to leverage the cloud. Ironically, they want to leverage the cloud from the perspective of just getting those EC2 instances <laughs> and then they decide what's on top. But they want the as a service simplicity, the push button simplicity that they would have just gotten from the, 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 the cloud to 2.0 world. So that's where we really come in. You know, that's, that's where, where we come in and where we position ourselves is, you know, our platform gives you a handful of these services, which have all been uh, built in an automated way, automated when it comes to install, automated when it comes to upgrade, automated when it comes to scale up, scale down, automated when it comes to security. We've put all the automations in uh, to make this system on top, whether it's Kafka, Cassandra, Elastic, Spark, Jenkins, you know, a bunch of others, we've put the automation in place to give people, you know, as close to that public cloud experience that gets back to our vision, the public cloud experience of just clicking some buttons, but from an open ecosystem, you know, all those, all that tech that I just talked about, they're all open source software. So anybody can just use those APIs in a completely open source way. And then on any, any infrastructure, they can stand us up on any of the clouds. Again, getting back to just using the VMs, or they can stand us up on on-prem. And that, you know, that's, that gives those organizations a lot of the power and, and, and control that they really want. Because infrastructure, infrastructure operations organizations, I mean, the, the struggle that they have every day is they don't want to keep their teams from moving fast, but they don't have the tools in their tool belts internally within their own shops to be able to stand up a Kafka in days, you know, or, 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 or minutes, <laughs> um, or stand up, you know, a, a key value store or a, or a database or, or a, an analytics cluster or, or notebooks for doing machine learning. And we're just, you're going to constantly get a new piece of tech every couple months that enterprise engineers are going to ask for. Applications developers are going to say, now I want that, now I want that. And it's tough to not just go to the cloud because they're, all, they're being created there as, as, as a service products. And so that's where we can really come in and we can work with the infrastructure ops folks and say, listen, let us help you give the agility and speed back to your internal users, but wherever you want, on your own internal infrastructure, on any of the clouds, and you, know, you get the best of both worlds. You give your internal teams this public cloud-like experience, but you get to decide which open source software you're going to use. So you're not going to get locked into any particular cloud on top of our platform, and, and then you can run it anywhere. And, and sometimes what people say to me is they say, well, aren't, aren't we just getting locked into you then if we're running, you know, aren't we just getting locked into Mesosphere if we're running everything on, um, with, with Mesosphere? Um, and, and, you know, the, the reality is, is because we've made that deliberate decision to pull from the open source community of tools, the Kafka's, Cassandra's, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you're not getting locked into us. Your, your applications, if they're getting locked into anything, your applications are getting locked into those open source APIs. And the value we're really providing is we're going to make it easier to operate all those services. And if we don't find value in that, if you really wanted to, you could leave us and you could run all those services yourself. 
And guess what? Your applications wouldn't have to change. You get to keep running those applications. So we are giving people that flexibility, and you know we're 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 relying on the fact that we can provide some 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 some, some real value in the automation. But it, but it's tricky, you know. I mean I mean the tension that exists for all these companies is the tension between go moving fast, being agile, getting stuff built really quickly, and not getting the lock in. And I think now is the time to actually help organizations solve that problem. You know, I, I think you can have your cake and eat it too, I, I guess is yeah. the way to think about it. So I can see how you get a moat there for building really good automation around standing up Kafka, standing up Kubernetes, standing up Storm, Spark, Flink, all this open source stuff. But when it comes to the high leverage managed services for which there has not yet been built an open source system, I mean, there's there are more and more open source alternatives like even Knative is it seems I I'm just starting to get into that but it, it seems like a compelling alternative to building your services on Lambda but there's you know probably enterprises out there that are going to want to use AWS Lambda so and then you get into this decision matrix where you have to decide okay which open source services are we going to build and what's the accessibility layer to the cloud providers if you know if Google stands up some proprietary magical Google service that we don't have an open source alternative to and we have no idea how to build one, you want to make it available to your users. And so you need some kind of control plane where they can reach out to Google or they can reach out to AWS or they can reach out to your open source managed services. Basically, I guess the question I'm getting at is you have this gigantic decision matrix of different integrations that you could build. If you're trying to build this multi-cloud magical management layer, how do you handle that decision overload? Yeah. Yeah. The the conversation that I have with CIOs, CTOs, or or enterprise architects, the conversation goes like, it's something like this. It's, It's very likely that there might be a service on one of the clouds that you want to take advantage of. You mentioned Google. If performance is so critical for the TensorFlow jobs that you're running, there's one place in the world where they have this thing called a TPU for running TensorFlow. If that's the performance you need, I don't think we're ever going to get TPUs in the rest of our uh, of our data centers or in the other clouds. It's just not going to happen, right? That's that's where that's going to be. Obviously, people will make it work exceptionally well on GPUs, and so they will give you options. But if you get to a place where you feel like there's a service in the cloud you have to use, my, I wouldn't say don't don't do it. What I would say is do it just for that service. And give yourself and your company the flexibility for all the other things that you're doing where you can move between clouds or move between on-prem and and the cloud. Give yourself the ability to actually do that for all the other services. Because if then, you know, you do find yourself using a Google-specific service and 12 months later you're no longer running that application or that application runs just as well consuming GPUs in a cheaper way on-prem or in some other cloud, rather than having to do 100% of work to completely move yourself from one cloud to another cloud, you're doing like 10%. You know, So there's some work you still need to do because you did tie into some particular APIs. But for everything else, you know, you're just you're you're just using the open source stuff. So, again, we've got customers that we work with where they'll use our Kafka, they'll use our Spark, they'll use our Kubernetes, they'll use our Elastic, and they'll use then one service from a particular cloud that they want to use that's critical for them to use. But they've still given themselves a lot of leverage and a lot of opportunity in just a much simpler time if they ever want to move in the future to be able to do that move. If they hadn't done that, if they would have built their applications directly against all of those services in the cloud, that would have been tough. You know, any think about moves that they wanted to make, it would have been a very, very long effort. It's unclear that they would ever been able to do that effort. And, you know, it's, it's unlikely that they would. But we, we have customers that have moved apps 100% from on-prem to the cloud because they've been running on top of the platform. That's powerful. It's really, really, really powerful. So it's very, very possible. Yes, you have to move data. You know, data has gravity. That, that can be a, a real thing. But, but people can do it. They can do it. And I personally think that in the future, as multi-cloud becomes more and more a thing, there'll be price wars. You know, there'll be a, <laughs> I mean, there's already price wars. <laughs> but I, I, th- I think you'll see this be a real, real thing when customers are able to actually 
apply some some leverage and say, hey, listen, I can get it cheaper over here, and so I'm going to do that. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing for business. So if I want to interact with an Amazon service today and I want to be like an Amazon-specific service, like Amazon Kinesis, for example, and I want to have my Kubernetes cluster interact with it. I've got some application that wants to make make calls out to the Kinesis API, but I want, I want Mesosphere to be my multi-cloud management layer. So I've got certain Kinesis calls I want to make in my application. Maybe I've got certain Google BigQuery calls I want to make. What is, if I'm using Mesosphere as my platform, do I need? Do I also need like an instance in Amazon? Do I also need an instance in Google, or do I just make calls out to the API? How yeah, does that yeah, look? Yeah, you can you can just make calls out directly to the APIs. There's there's kind of two parts to to this magic. The first part of the mag- magic is how you get the services themselves, how you get instances of the services, because even with you know the Kinesis or the big tables of the world, you still have to hit APIs to give yourself to provision the service so that you can then make API, API calls to it. So that, that's kind of the first part. And the direction that, that, that we see a lot of folks going in and, and that we're also investing in is, is much more around things like open service broker to allow you know, a standardized way of letting some people come in and say, oh, I need XYZ. Is that part of my catalog? Okay, yes, it is. Great. I want that thing. Let's get it provisioned under the covers. And, and that, I think, helps infrastructure ops teams as well start to think about the interface, the catalog, if you will, the multi-cloud and beyond catalog for, uh, for teams. That's kind of one side of it. Then, the, then there's the second side of it, which is, okay, now once I've got those services provisioned and I just want to hit the APIs, what, am I, what can my apps do? And in that case, the apps just talk to, talk to those services directly. You know, they, they just hit, hit those APIs directly. And that's where some of the lock-in can come in if those applications are using APIs of these services, which are you know, cloud-specific or service-specific, that's where it's going to get harder for people to, over time, figure out how to, to change the application and, and have it use some other API, an open API or something else. And again, I mean, I think the reality is, is sure, it's always software, and someone can always show up, and they can, they can rewrite the application to talk to this new API, but software is still far more brittle than people realize. <laughs> Once you make something work... To go and then totally rewrite parts of it to speak a slightly different API, you're going to have bugs. You're going to run into bugs. That's going to lead to frustration from your end users because they're going to experience those bugs. And then on top of that, a lot of engineers, they don't want to do that work. That's not fun work to you know go and take an application and change the API. So you don't have a lot of wind in your sail, I suppose, when it comes to in the future being able to refactor and really change software. A lot of engineers don't like to refactor software like that. A lot of engineers like to refactor, but they want to refactor and you know build the blinky version of uh, of copy and paste or something, right? So they love to do that, but they don't like to refactor where it's like, oh, I'm just swapping it from using Kinesis to Kafka or you know or something like that. Like, oh, geez, that's that's a total drag. But yeah, you know, in 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 our in our platform, you wouldn't need necessarily to be running any specific Mesosphere nodes in all of the clouds. Okay, um, you don't need access to like the AWS CLI or the Google Cloud nope, CLI. Or nope, okay. nope, no, yeah, no. You you can just you know you if you want to run our services, the ones from you know the Kafka's and the Cassandras and those things on top of us across multiple clouds, which we have have customers doing. To do that, yeah, you're going to be able. To, you're going to need to run us in each of the clouds, and we've got some really, really interesting, interesting work we're doing with customers where they'll do exactly that. They'll, they have these um, single, massive, massively distributed clusters where we've got you know nodes in Google and Azure and AWS in multiple regions, and then using using basically you know constraints, they can launch these different distributed services in these various regions. And they can bring up one for each of the different clouds. It's very, very powerful. It's really, really cool. And they might want to do that because, again, they're consuming a particular service from the cloud provider. And so they want to place it in that cloud provider's region so that they get better performance from a, from a latency perspective. But they don't have to. You know, they don't have to. If you want, there's plenty of apps out there that are hitting cloud SaaS services from their on-prem data centers and just dealing with the 100, 100 millisecond plus latencies because because they can or, they, or they've been architected to be able to do so. Right. So as you're 
building these all these integrations with you've got a you know this end by end matrix of cloud providers and open source technologies and you need to be able to have an on-prem setup so you need to be able to wherever mesosphere is deployed if it's deployed on-prem or if it's deployed on azure or if it's deployed on google cloud you need to be able to provision hadoop clusters kafka clusters cassandra clusters what are some engineering difficulties in building that consistent matrix of distributed systems that could potentially be deployed and how and also how do you hire enough engineers to build all those integrations yeah so i i mean the, the first step for each of these each of these services is you know having enough expertise to be able to understand what it takes to operate them so that we can we can build in the automation via software of, of these services. That's kind of step one. And for that, you know, the folks we hire are people that have run these things themselves. There's a great term for this, and I'm just blanking at it. But in anger, that's that's what it is. You know, we like to hire people that have run these things in anger, right? Because they've experienced the pain. And if, you know, if when they've run these things in anger themselves, I'm sure that they've either written a lot of code themselves or scripts or whatever it is to try to operate these things themselves, or they've at least written down all the things they might want to do. So we like to bring those people in and say, great, let's turn all that into code. Let's turn all that into code that actually operates these things and makes it easier to operate these things. And a question I often get is, is you know, the question I often get is, is, why don't the projects do this themselves? You know, why don't the open source projects do this themselves? If, if these things can be such a pain in the butt to operate, why don't they just do this? But the reality is, is that they don't do it because they, they're running enough disparate ways that, you know, it's not easy to just be like, everything will be deployed in this one way. And so therefore, we can make the operations of this thing perfect, right? And so... Um, so, it, so luckily, that falls on your there shoulders. You go, exactly. So, so luckily, we get to take that on. But, but that, that's kind of step one. And then step two is, okay, which I think is one of the most important steps is, how do all these things run with one another? <laughs> and I think that that's so important because if you really want to do things in a cost-effective way, either on-prem or in the cloud, these days, you've got to run this stuff together right? Because you've got to take advantage of idle resources. You've got to drive up your utilization. What, when we first started this whole container scheduling, you know, resource management thing, I mean, we don't use the word resource management anymore. It's just, it's not the word we use, right? We're, we're at KubeCon. We talk about container orchestration, right? It's about orchestrating your containers far more than it is about being efficient with resources. Like you're getting that, that's a part of it, but it's just it's less of a big part of the conversation that we're actually having. But when it comes to a bunch of these distributed systems, it's so important and it's so relevant because if you really want to want to drive your, your, your costs down, um, you need to run these things together. And so that's kind of the second part is once you figure out how to, to deal with the, you know, the automated operations of these things, then it becomes how do you deal with the, the running these things alongside other things? What happens when Spark and Kafka run on the same node, right? What happens when Kafka and Cassandra run on the same node? What happens when you run too many Kafkas on the same node? What are the performance things that you run into? What are the other weird things that happen because these two services both happen to use disks in, in a particular way? And that's, in, that's in, in the whole second phase of the automating the operations that we like to, to again, say... A lot of people haven't done that in anger because <laughs> they didn't run them on the same node. But if they wanted to, to do things in a cost-effective cost way, they're going to really have to. And, and that's the reality. I mean, when you go to AWS and you get services, all this stuff is just it's done behind the scenes. And I mean, there's no question in my mind, while well, I've never worked at AWS, there's no question in my mind that there's engineers at AWS that are building exactly this kind of software for their SaaS offerings for their, you know, services that, 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 they, that they expose. And that's, of course, not open sourced at all. That's not, you know, that's 100% proprietary. Um, and you pay for it. You know, the margins for those services at Amazon, are, they're probably huge. I mean, I, I, well, the, the, we've heard, you know, Amazon's margins are 30s or something like that, you know, it, it, 30, 40 or something like that. But the margins for rack space for using VMware was like 10 or something like that, right? So let, let's say AWS is doing a little bit better than them, okay? So, you know, they're, they're doing a little bit better than rack space. That means that the margins for the services have got to be huge, 50, 60, you know, huge, massive. 
to actually be able to account for for you know the number of VMs running versus everything else. So yeah, there's real value in that software. There's real value in giving you that as a service experience because there's a lot of of thought and thinking that goes into it. And so you know, I get to answer your question. Yeah, we hire folks that have done it in anger, <laughs> and we we turn that into software that helps manage both the the you know the day zero deployment install as way as well as the day two upgrades. Uh, you know, elastic scale up, scale down, all those pieces. And then we also put a lot of time and effort into let's run all these things together and let's see where stuff falls over. And when it falls over, let's figure out why. And then let's figure out what we can do to actually improve these pieces so you can run them together because that's how we're going to drive up the, you know, the, the utilization across the clusters, drive down the cost and give those companies a far cheaper experience than if they were to just spin up spin up each of those each of those services on on any of the public clouds themselves. So when you were at the Amp Lab, your work on Mesos was building a two-layer scheduler around distributed systems and the scheduler problems that I've talked to well, that, that I talked to Jan about, for example, he's thinking about serverless right now and the idea that you can make calls out to serverless functions and have them be provisioned easily and they can be performant and perhaps you can do interesting things on top of those serverless functions like do MapReduce or distributed machine learning atop a set of Lambda functions or serverless Knative things or whatever whatever your, your function as a service unit of compute is. Given your expertise in schedulers, what do you think of that space? What are the fundamental problems around building functions as a service platforms and building the level on top of it to be able to do higher level service construction? It's interesting. Functions as a service, AWS Lambda and, and all the other ones that are coming out, you know, when they first came out, they sort of, I think they, they took people, it was like massive hype initially. And, but then I think it's been a little bit quieter. I mean, it's not that quiet, let's be honest. But just compared to, say, some of the container orchestration stuff that was happening, um, and, and you know, getting back to the earlier part of, of the show, I think one of the reasons for that was that functions felt a little more revolutionary than evolutionary. Containers feel very evolutionary for people. You know, even if there's some revolutionary things there, I think it's just far easier for a lot of enterprise shops to think about how they can start to adopt containers along their, their evolutionary paths that they already have at their companies. I, in fact, I can't tell you how many companies out there that we've talked to, they, they're literally just treating the container like a VM. You know, <laughs> They're sticking all the same amount of stuff that they would have stuck in a VM in a container, and then they're just running it, and which is really unfortunate because then you know, when they go to run these 3.6 gigabyte containers and it takes five minutes to start the container, they're asking themselves, what the heck? This isn't any faster than VMs. What, uh, what's going on? I thought that um, this was supposed to be super fast. They're like, well, you know, it turns out you've got a lot of crap in that, VM, that container because you're treating it like a VM. Anyway, that, that's a bit of a digression. So I think one of the reasons why... Um, well, not completely because people are doing that with functions. They, they are, yeah. They are, yeah. But what I think is, to me, what's so interesting about functions is when you think about how you build software, it's just a collection of functions, right? That's what it is, right? When you take a step back and you think about, okay, I'm building this new complicated distributed system, whatever it is, it's like, oh, I've got, I've got this functionality, I've got that functionality, and it's just going to be a bunch of functions that things call, call to. But the way in which we really deploy these then distributed systems is we have higher level concepts of components that are a collection of a whole bunch of these functions. And then we deploy basically the components and we manage the components. And, and functions as a service is pushing, that, is pushing that to an extreme. And it's basically saying, stop thinking about the components and just think about the individual functions that you're actually trying, trying to provide. And so I, I think where there's still open questions in my mind, and, and I think in a bunch of people's minds, is does pushing it to the limit of just thinking about functions... Does that end up getting, does it make it harder to build certain things? Is there an impedance mismatch with certain kinds of software that you're trying to build? So, you know, you mentioned things like 
people are thinking about they could do MapReduce on top of functions. They could do this on top of functions. They could do that. Um, I think you can, yeah, 100%, because all software is really, at the end of the day, just a collection of functions, <laughs> right? We've just chosen arbitrarily to group those functions into components that we then, you know, deploy the components in containers throughout throughout our, our clusters. And so I, I think what will be what will be interesting is is as people are going to kind of push functions to this limit, like what are we going to be doing from a software engineering and programming languages perspective to make some of that stuff easier? Or is it just going to kind of be this kludgy mess of actually there is an impedance mismatch for this kind of thing I'm trying to build and I'm going to bundle a whole bunch of stuff in my function, as you alluded to earlier, that people are already doing, or just do really weird stuff in my function because it's not exactly what I want, but there's other aspects of functions that I like and it's super easy to deploy these functions and everything is really managed for me because I'm just launching these functions. So I'll, I'll make it work. And you know, one of the examples I see is people will, they will, you know, when their function gets turned off, they'll fire an alert to restart a function, right? You know, they'll like, do things that are kind of going around the whole concept of this function, like, hey, I only need the functions up when there's APIs call- calls coming in, and when there's not, I'll shut them down. And then people are like, oh, but for this thing I'm trying to build on top of functions, actually, the stuff in memory is really, really important for me. So, like, if my function gets shut down, I need to start it up right away and pull stuff into memory right away because it's going to be a lot faster because that's how I do a faster map reduce or something like that with functions. And they're kind of going around the, you know, the intent of how, how functions should be done. And that, to me, that's kind of an impedance mismatch. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a one-to-one with, with how functions should actually be, be run. Um, but I think it's still early days, quite frankly. And that's why I think somebody like Jan at Berkeley to be wanting to take this stuff on and look at it is to be able to take those those kinds of impedance mismatches that people run into and, and ask, can we put some new abstractions or some new primitives as part of functions to actually make this work really, really well and capture the kinds of programming models or programming tasks that people are trying to do while not losing sight of the really, really nice property of, I just got to deploy a function. You know, I just got to send a function out there. I think it's a pretty liberating programming model, personally. Uh, you know, when we built Mesos, we built Mesos with the actor programming model. Everything's asynchronous. So we've got a ton of, you know, quote, functions in the, the, the platform. But really, you can think of it as a ton of actors running around sending messages to one another. And I just, I think that's a really liberating programming model to be able to think about all these independent things that are just running and when they fail, they restart. And when they want to talk to somebody else, they just send an API call and then they can wait asynchronously for the response or not. You know, they just broadcast, you know, cast it out there and then, and then that's it. I think from, from programming all perspective, there's a lot of power to it. Uh, again, I, the word I use was liberating because a lot of our programming models are so intertwined and like you're your software you end up producing is so complicated and and interwoven. And I think the functions as a service can help get people more into the perspective of let's think asynchronously and a bit more independently about a bunch of independent things that all have APIs that they expose or that react to events. And then together, all the work that these things are doing make up this grander, bigger picture of this application. So I, I, but, but at the same time, as much as I, I think that's liberating, I think it's, it's still early days. And, and I think as people push the limits of how they want to run certain software on top of it, I think the natural thing that they're going to run into is like, oh, this doesn't exactly do what I want to do. So I'll do this kludgy thing to try to make it work. I, I think we will overcome that. I, I, I actually think that functions will be a much bigger part of our future than people realize, possibly even sooner than we think. It'll be interesting to see how that plays in with the, uh, with the container world. Uh, container orchestration containers, they've already really been commoditized, you know, with the help of Kubernetes and, and a bunch of other services. Com- commoditized in the sense that, you know, people will do them and they'll use them in a, in a sort of a standards way. But I think that people might jump even faster to functions if we can make it super easy for them to be able to consume those functions as they're thinking about rebuilding their applications versus st- sticking those applications in, in containers. Um, I will say, though, that I think it's going to be a while until we're building really sophisticated distributed systems like the Kafkas and the Cassandras and all these things on straight functions. Just because I think that there's, there'll be enough impedance mismatches that people will have that they'll basically say, 
nope, you know what? I just am going to still build this in the, you know, quote, traditional way, <laughs> you know, the bundled software way where here's all the, you know, here's the software and I go. And even distributed systems, I think, like that's been tough for people. Like bundled software was easy. I stuck a CD in my computer. I double clicked the install manager. Yeah. It installed. I was done, right? Like distributed systems are still far more complicated. Um, which even is, with Helm charts? Even with Helm charts. Because cause it, it comes to the operations of it. It comes to like all, all the other things. So I, I still think, you know, for so somebody that wants to build one of these really complicated distributed systems and go just have their deployment mechanism be functions. It's like, you know, 10 years ago, my deployment, my, my distribution mechanism was here's a CD. You know, five years ago, my distribution method was download this tarball or this zip file from the internet. Right now, my distribution method is looking is is getting like a bundle of containers, and I think that's still messy. I think it's still messy even with Helm charts, even with those things, and that's why I think a lot of people are going to services. To get back to our earlier conversation earlier, I think that's why they just want to go click a button and get those services because there's still just too many pieces under the covers. So I think like, how are you going to distribute the the functions, you know, software? Right, you're probably not. Like if you're exposing some software you built with a bunch of functions and you're running it via functions, that's one thing. That's totally one thing. But if you're trying to ship software to somebody else, if you're trying to build some distributed system that you want other people to be able to run on their own, I think we'll be a little bit of... of, I think we're still a little ways out there until someone says, here's my new system. Before you run it, you have to install Kubernetes. Then you have to get Knative going, and then you can launch my functions on top of Knative. You know, it's just like it's just it's a lot of steps, and it's I just a lot of steps. I just don't think that you're going to see that next year. Maybe you'll see it next year. You, know, you never know these days in the industry. But I, I see more. I see functions are going to. I think they're going to be used a lot by a lot of teams, and they might use those to then ultimately provide some service out to other people. But I don't know what it's going to look like from a distribution of 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 the the end software. And, and again, you know, as we're moving to this world of everything is being operated, you know, consumed and operated in this as a service way, maybe it doesn't matter, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe in the next five years, we won't be distributing software. Everybody will just be consuming everything as a service. I'm a that's li- what I see today in yeah. the younger companies. I mean, the younger was 100%. Yeah, that's that whole cloud 2.0, cloud 1.0. Yeah. Like, you know, I, 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 and they move so much faster. It's and all the, APIs and Firebase and Netlify and Heroku and... Just like they just want to move fast. They just and want do to move business fast. logic. That's exactly and- right. You got it. Yeah. And 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 again, I think that's where the traditional enterprise companies get stuck. Yeah. And they're like, well, what do I do? And that's where we try to come in and say, well, let let us help you give let let us help you give your internal customers a bunch of these services to move fast. They need to hurry up. They got to hurry up because otherwise they're all going to go l- to the cloud. I'm looking at the pace of these companies that are doing you know cloud 2.0. They just move so much faster. They totally do, yeah. And, it, and they're happier, by the way. Yeah, well, and that, that's one of the funny things as well is, you know, you look back at the Linux cons of, of 10 years ago, you know, a big part of that community was people running all the tech themselves, you know, like the operators, the administrators, that's what they got to do. That was like a big part of it. And now you look at like the brand new startup in Silicon Valley that just got funded and they're just straight using the services and they're like, what? I don't know how to manage a MySQL database. Why should I know how to manage a MySQL database? They're like, well, didn't you get a computer science degree in in college? Of course I got a computer science degree, but whatever. I'm building these higher level machine learning applications or I'm building these other applications. Just because I got a computer science degree doesn't mean that I should know how to run my own MySQL database. And yeah, that's that cloud 2.0 mental mindset that... I think five years from now, enterprises will look back and they'll, they'll be doing that in some capacity. Other, uh, you know, we'll be helping them to do that. <laughs> so, I mean, so much of this conversation has been premised on this idea that, and so much of your product, by the way, is premised on the idea that these enterprises want to have an avoidance of vendor lock-in. And sometimes I look at it and I'm like, your business is so good. Why do you care if you're spending $1 million or $10 million managing your servers and your infrastructure? Just like pay AWS to manage all of it or pay Google Cloud to manage all of it or do whatever you need to run faster because otherwise your core business might actually be threatened. And, you know, either way, it's a de minimis percentage of your budget relative to what you're making. I mean, does it ever just seem like complete madness to you? I mean, so it, if for companies that are just like, wow, we cannot move at all whatsoever. We're moving so slow. What do we actually do? 
I think it's easy to just look at the cloud and say, that's a panacea. That's going to help my companies move faster. It's going to do everything else. But I think enough people have been through that, you know, that experience with other the lock-in. vendors. Yeah. And, you know, they've got the, the gray hairs to deal with the fact that they were writing hundred million dollar checks. These to, are like the business equivalents of the uh, Jan Stoika's um, uh, that's you know, exactly academic right. experience. That's exactly right. They know. They know. They've seen this rodeo before. You got it. And they're, they're sitting there and they're just like, whoa, okay, hold on a second. I've already got these huge checks that I'm writing. Is there anything I can do? I mean, they're at least asking the question, which I think is the right thing to do. Is there anything I can do to protect myself, to protect the business. But yet at the same time, they're like, but I want to move fast. I want to move fast. So, you know, the the charge that they have for their infrastructure IT organizations is how can we move fast while giving us the flexibility in the future? And that's why, you know, I think it's, that's why, that's why we exist as a company. (laughs) And that's why, you know, I think it's a really important time for us to be working with all those organizations because, I, you know, I think you can get your cake and eat it too. I think that you can get the, the agility and the flexibility and provide things like message queues as a service without getting locked into a single cloud. And I think it's just the beginning of, of that because really, you know, three years ago, we didn't talk that much about the three clouds. We still just kind of talked about AWS. You know, now we're talking at least about two clouds for sure. And we're talking, we're talking about, about more and more other clouds as well. So we think you can have your cake and eat it too. And, and, you know, we also think that when you're going to start deploying your software in a bunch of more interesting places, like the edge, that's the other big thing is running your software at the edge, you're going to want this flexibility. You're not going to want to find yourself, all your applications can only run in a cloud and you want to run your application in some really interesting environment for whatever business you're trying to, to, to do and you don't want to ship data and deal with the latencies and all, all, you know, the bandwidth issues and everything else. What are you going to do, right? What are you going to do? Um, and and I we we think that we're going to see the edge more and more, and that's just going to make this multi-cloud and this hybrid cloud thing be a, a, a reality for organizations. Okay, last question. Since you brought up edge computing, AWS announced this outposts, outposts yep. thing, and Azure has Azure Stack. So the cloud providers moving into the on-prem world. In your conversations with enterprises, do they? What's their level of interest in this? How does it impact your go-to-market strategy? Yeah, so Azure kind of kicked it off. Azure Stack hasn't. I don't know that it's been a huge success. We don't see a ton of it, honestly. With a lot of a lot of the customers we work with, like we work with folks who are on Azure. They're not on Azure Stack. They're using Azure in the cloud. They're not u- using Azure Stack. Uh, you know, Google started at least with Kubernetes, uh, GKE on-prem, which is really. I'm pretty sure GKE on VMware on-prem as, as you know, something that, that they've started. I don't know actually where that's gone. So I think for AWS to announce something, it's almost like they had to. I think they had, if they didn't announce it, I think there was just going to be far too much, hey, you know, we're thinking about going with Azure because they're going to give us an on-prem experience or we're going to go with Google because they're at least starting to think about on-prem and we know we have to have some on-prem. The way it's been described, and I know I don't work at AWS, nor have I had a deep conversation with AWS, but the way it's been described is it's managed. It's managed on-prem, which I think is going to be a, you know, a, a turnoff for a lot of, of enterprise organizations. I think a lot of enterprise organizations, the infrastructure folks, they still want to get the software. They still want to run the software themselves. And, there's various, and they want to keep the data on-prem. They want to keep the data on-prem. And so when I say managed, I just mean, you know, there's going to be a you know an AWS employee who's who's operating your clusters and and so I, I think for some organizations that's going to be like yeah it's fine you know I'll bring these people in for other organizations are going to be like whoa 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 I you know I that's not the model we want we want to be able to run the AWS software you know in ourselves <laughs> so from that perspective I mean again that comes back to you know what we're trying to do is we are trying to enable the, the the infrastructure operators to be able to do it themselves but still make it a lot easier as easy as as a public cloud um, and I, I think that's still an opportunity for us to do that with those 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 customers I the second thing is our focus on on the open source services I still think that even if you go on-prem, a lot of these organizations are going to want to use the open source services and the open source APIs to give them that ability to, to move if they want to, to still not, not get locked in to any particular provider. So I, I think that that's going to be a thing. And again, you have AWS announcing things like the managed Kafka service at AWS reInvent. So I think they're also hearing customers saying, yeah, we want more open source APIs. We want more open source APIs. Uh, but I don't know that they're going to push that 
to the extreme, the way we push it to an extreme, which I still think is going to be, you know, some, some, some opportunities that we have for a bunch of the customers that, that we work with. The last thing is, I don't know that I'm not convinced that the future is just going to be a hybrid world. Hybrid being you pick one public cloud provider and you pick, and they can also provide an on-prem experience. I think it's going to be more mixed. I think the future is going to be a multi-cloud world. And the reason why I think the future is going to be a multi-cloud world is because of the part of the conversation we had earlier, where there's going to be some things you can do on particular clouds that is better than anywhere else. It's better than any on-prem experience you'll ever get, or it's better than any of the other public clouds. And then there's lots of vendors that are, are cloud agnostic, your cockroach labs or your stripes or... Yep, yep yeah. And so, so then, you know, and so the same thing that I said earlier is, well, then if you go to run stuff, consuming that particular public cloud service, everything else you should run in that public cloud, you should run it in a cloud agnostic way where you can be able to move it if at any point in time you don't want to use that service. Which means I just think the companies that are being thoughtful about this from day one, they're going to decide not to just, even though they can run AWS on-prem, they're still going to decide to do it in a multi-cloud way. And then I think, you know, the whole, the whole like, oh, I can run this stuff on-prem becomes less interesting for a bunch of those companies. That's not to say that I don't think people will, will give it a shot and some people will dive in. I mean, it's a huge market. It's a massive market. But I think the real opportunity for us still is, hey, we give you multi-cloud. We give you on-prem. You know, it's an open ecosystem of, of services, open source APIs. We give you, you know, that, that public cloud experience, though, on-prem and, and in any of the clouds. And that, I think, is still going to be a, a value proposition for a bunch of organizations. Ben Heinemann, always a pleasure. Yep, thanks so much. Great to be here. Wow.